My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Maggie Kinnafake, a venture partner with Royal Street Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on Venture in the Middle. Let's hear from my guest today. Hi, welcome to the Coffin Fellows podcast. This is the Venture in the Middle series. Today, our guest, John Tuff, joins us from his office in Chicago. For those of you who don't know John, John has a storied career, started in investment banking, uh, went, moved out to the West Coast, was with Kleiner Perkins in their Green Growth Fund, and then returned to the Midwest, to the middle of the country, to lead Energize Ventures. So John, welcome. We're super glad to have you here today. Thanks, Maggie. I, I got to say, I really enjoy the venture in the middle. I like that name. It's good. Thanks. So I think it's certainly a unique, it's yep. certainly a unique segment, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to cover about what's going on in the middle of the country and technologies here. So looking forward to it. Good. Well, I, you know, I did kind of this, that quick broad brush and flew past kind of your background yep. just for the group. Can you give them a little more detail to your background and, and kind of how, how you arrived where you are now? Sure. So I was, my undergrad was at Duke and I was actually a biology and chemistry major, um, which is very different than ultimately the career I chose. I wanted to go be a doctor, but I, I have an older sister who is a doctor. And I saw it took her about 10 years to get into the actual workforce. And um, I knew that was not how I like to operate. So my, my junior year, I got a job at UBS in their investment bank because at that time, bioethanols were all the craze and a bunch of you know, the, the corn turning to fuel was the craze in the, the mid 2000s for those that don't know this. And, um, and banks were looking for biology students to help them explain the process. So I got into banking and I was there for a couple of years after that, focused on alternative energy as well. Learned a lot, didn't love it. So ultimately went to business school to get into the earlier stage environment, venture investing, et cetera. And my first year at business school at University of Chicago, I reached out to 70 firms on the West Coast and East Coast trying to get into venture. Um, this was before it was as cool as it is today. And um, actually ended up getting like, you know, 20 people respond and um, created five or six interview processes for myself and, and then ultimately got selected, joined the, the Green Growth Fund uh, at Kleiner, which is now called G2 uh, Venture Partners. Was there for a few years, loved it, realized that I really wanted to get the operating uh, experience under my belt. Um, so after uh, a number of investments with the group, left to go join as one of the first employees at a firm called um, Shoes Energy, which was an online energy marketplace. Um, there's a few of those now. And when I was there for about five years, we sold it successfully to Red Ventures. This is all on the West Coast and ultimately decided at that moment to move back to the Midwest, uh, to Chicago specifically um, with my family, where um, I joined the then very nascent Energized Ventures team. And over time, I've now grown into being the managing partner. The group. That was a long, long explanation. Hopefully, that was that was uh, sufficient. 
but happy to answer any questions. No, I mean, I think that I just think that's super interesting. And I think it provides really good context for some of the things we'll talk about. So, okay, so let's talk about Energize for a minute. So you guys are investing, I think the the way you frame it is digital transformation of energy and industrial markets and focus on emerging tech, right? And Mm -hmm. capital intensive industries. So talk to me a little bit about why, why is industrial so important to Energize? The approach that we took and, and there was a, this study, I can send it to you, this McKinsey study that, that shows the spend, the IT spend by industry as a percentage of revenue. And you know, the banking industry spends like 8% of their revenues on IT. And you go down the whole list and the very last group, like literally the worst innovator in digital technologies is the energy and industrial cohort. And you know, there's two ways to approach that. The one approach is they've been bad before, they'll always be bad. That's not how I think, I wanna be more positive. I fundamentally believe that these industries, if you know how to approach them, are willing and open to adopt new digital solutions. They are the backbone of America. The manufacturing, the logistics, the energy, the industrial machinery uh, you know, are, are a key part of our economy and we need to help them get more digital. And there's a whole new wave of individuals um, joining these firms we're going to think digital first. And so we've made investments in the space um, that are going to help, you know, infuse digital solutions into the industrial backbone of kind of North America and, and actually globally as well. So that that's that's the general thesis. So, you know, that's interesting too. You know, I, when you were talking about just kind of the, the, the massive scope and sort of reach, I mean, isn't it, I think I've seen it, it's what more than 50% of the GDP is wrapped up in these sectors. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and yet, and yet, it's been slow to see digitization, but even to see and to see venture and sort of investment pay attention to yeah. those opportunities. And I know we'll talk more in a few minutes about how that's all changing. So, you talked about the McKinsey report that that sort of shaped Energize's focus there. Mm-hmm. What about you personally? What what I, you started? I mean, you started working in that space somewhat really early on in your career. Yep. What drives your passion in this space? So I think there's there's a lot that forms anybody, and and for me, um, I'm actually I was born in Canada, um, and there's a, there's a big Canadian ethos about you know being positive to the environment. You know, went to a lot of camps growing up that were very involved in you know being part of nature. Um, so it started there, but then generally, I looked at all of the the different industries where somebody could spend their career, and you know, there's everything from uh, we talked about this before the show started. You know, marketing technologies to banking to you know renewables etc and i just i've always felt the need that you can do good um while making a big financial return at the same time and so from early in my career i would just been focused on aligning those two initiatives in the us you know play first and other countries are really catching up there's been a, a huge uh focus on this you know sustainable revolution is what i call it i think the first industries that actually addressed it were the power industries uh, about a decade ago? Really started thinking about decarbonizing, and they're they're on a torrid pace now. But finally, the other traditional industries, industrials, manufacturing, transportation, are now all looking at a holistic adoption of more sustainable solutions. And a great way to do that is by by being more more digital um, and and approaching efficient operations. So to me, the, those all just aligned. Um, and I'm thankful for it, and I'm thankful for the people I get to meet, like you, who who some who take a somewhat similar uh, approach to the mission. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I think the the two things for me that make me really interested in that space certainly are the the kinds of people that you meet working in it. I, you yep. know, I I talked to somebody the other day who referenced some someone they had met in in, in Indiana. It was actually Secretary Budig a long time ago. This is a West Coast in, investor, and when he came, uh, the the it was Mayor Budig at the time, but said to him. You know, we have an asset here in the Midwest that you guys that you don't have on the West Coast, and that's sort of real people solving real people problems. And and I, and I guess when I think about industrial, it is so much of it's the heart of it's the heart of America, right? It's yeah. the heartland. It, it's the um, it's the kind of people you meet. But then it's also what you were talking about in terms of kind of that lack of investment in digitization. There's just so much opportunity to do to do better and make us more productive and make and make these massive sectors more efficient. So, you know, one of the, certainly, you know, in the, historically, this has been, I would say very much an undercapitalized sector uh, in terms of investment, in terms of the VC world, paying attention to it. That seems to be shifting. It's increasingly becoming a hot sector. I know we started to talk about that a little bit when we jumped on the call. What do you think is driving that? Why now and why not earlier? Yeah, I think, so there's been in, in clean tech 1.0 and industrial tech 1.0, which there was a big wave of interest in this space from 2005 to 2010. And there was this idea that all these really cool technologies, data analytics, computer vision, machine learning, et cetera, there was this knowledge that industry probably needed them. But the original way to sell into industrials was let's just throw at them a lot of really cool technology and see what sticks. And that, that's what failed dramatically. I think in the last decade, we've seen an increased respect from the venture capital community towards the subject matter expert. And that if you can make the subject matter expert an ally in the adoption of technology, somebody who you are peers with and who you are not smarter than, the technology companies can have greater success selling into the vertical. That's launched a number of firms um, with industrial and energy focus who end up being a bridge for that that um, kind of that space, and that that really drove and starting to drive some pretty major results in terms of exits for our for our market. And anytime there's great exits, you know, generalists tend to show up. I like to joke that um, generalists are the last to show up to the party and the first to leave in, in our market, and they are here now. And so the question now is just how long the party lasts. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I'm going to hope that we're in very early innings of that yes. game. Okay, so, you know, one of the things I'm spending some time thinking about these days is some of the most significant issues that are, that these foundational industries are, are facing. And when I'm looking, I'm seeing things like labor shortage, shortages, cyber threat vulnerability, certainly, you know, even before this year, but magnified to a great extent this year were the supply chain and logistics issues. I've heard you talk about how vulnerable the industrial sector is to cyber threats mm -hmm. and the opportunity I, that AI and machine intelligence could have could hold to address some of those. Tell me, what, what are you seeing as some of the opportunities around cyber? What are some of the technologies that you're seeing that get you excited? You know, the, the old school power plant was a big coal plant that was centralized and the old school manufacturing facility was a big, you know, CPG place where goods came in and widgets left the factory. As you, you noted, like the, our world is much more connected. Assets are increasingly distributed and decentralized. So now instead of coal plant, there's 50 wind turbines. Now instead of one central manufacturing plant, there's 
just-in-time logistics, which connects five different you know, manufacturing uh, points to make that same good. And everything works really well until the day it doesn't. And the newest version of cybersecurity products are products that live on the IT network or the, you know, or the OT network, OT being the, the field, the network, to identify just, hey, what is happening that is not in sync with A, what should be happening, or B, with what's coming from central command? Because usually there is a central command. And there's no human in the world who can monitor all that data. And so, as you said, this, this machine learning technologies, we have one investment company called Nozomi Networks that is monitoring these networks at rapid scale to notice even the smallest misplacement of instruction or information. And I think it's going to be this ever-increasing race of technology versus the bad guy. And the more that our you know, networks are decentralized, the more important these, these types of cybersecurity solutions will be. I think you're right. And, you know, those vulnerabilities, I mean, you were talking about it long before the last six weeks, but I think we've seen some of those play out, you know, at massive scale and um, they're only coming faster now. And um, it it is, you know, it'll be exciting to see what technologies sort of win in the space, but there's certainly room for a host of players, I think, to come in and add value. Yep. Let's talk about, you know, you and I were talking about how, how you, def- how I define the middle of the country. And I sure. told you, I, I think of it as a stripe from Texas to Minnesota, and we can all argue about how wide or narrow that stripe should be. You know, that stripe to me is the epicenter of these massive sectors and companies. And, you know, like we talked about, they've been slower to adopt technology. And I was reading something you posted recently about, uh, it, it happened, I think last spring, but Blue Yonder had a seven yep. billion dollar acquisition by Panasonic, mm-hmm. and you you had a lot of really interesting insights about you know why Panasonic was going was acquiring Blue Yonder and what it meant, what you thought it might mean about how manufacturers are going to approach supply chain and logistics in the future. COVID's certainly been one of the big drivers of acceleration we're seeing. Talk, talk to me about what, what, what you anticipate we might see in this kind of next chapter of manufacturers and how they approach their supply chain logistics issues. Yeah, I think there's, it's, and you know, you're, you're in you know, Kansas in the heart of all of this too, so I want to throw the question back to you after. But I, I just think that there's probably two main movements. One is every single manufacturer, whether it's maker of a candy bar or a power plant, their consumers, their customers are demanding knowledge about the source of those ingredients. And the current supply chains are not built for that level of information and uh, availability. And I, I think it's just gonna be standard. We're gonna wake up in you know 30 years and the factory and then the, the farm that the good came from is gonna be known. And how ethically sourced, what the carbon footprint, that'll all be known, that data has become expected. I think that's, that's a part one. And then part two is consumers are going to want to know, or, or corporations are, are going to want to know more data about what's going on from that manufacturing all the way until the day it arrives. And right now, like, I know we all think that these systems are so digital and tracking a good, they're, they're still not. And um, that predictability to manage a supply chain, to, to know when a good is going to come, what type of you know, event might disrupt the supply chain the amount of investment we'll require to, to really bring transparency to supply chains is still, you know, it's going to happen well beyond 
my career. Um, and it's, it's, it's a transformational opportunity for startups in, in the Midwest or that down the middle, as you're talking about, to, to serve because the customers are here. Couldn't agree more with you. It is funny when you think about as consumers, we think because we can order it on Amazon and see where it is as it moves towards our that last mile of delivery, right. we think it's it's really clear. But the reality is when you look at how freight, and I've been shocked even like at commodities logistics, it's mm -hmm. all triplicate, it's all triplicate sheets still, right? And yeah. it's and it's 90 days before those reconciliations are even coming to pass. I mean, there's so much room for that to improve on so many levels. We're looking at that phase too, Maggie. So maybe we should trade some notes on a few companies. I think that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Do so you know, I grew up. I grew up in the Midwest. We talked about that too. And you know, I think there's many advantages to building here and to investing here. You were in California. You were at the Green Growth Fund, which is now G2V. You moved back for the Midwest. I'm not. I'm not an expert on many things, but I'm pretty sure you didn't move back to Chicago for the winters. So. Talk to me about why, I mean, you, you really could have done this work in a number of places. Why here to mm -hmm. invest and, and be part of, you know, building great companies? Beyond the winters, as you said, <laughs> there, there were a few items that I was optimizing for at the stage of my career. And then what Energize specifically is optimizing for. One is there's a mentality to tech investing that the customer doesn't know what they want. Just couldn't believe that, that is that is so far from the truth when you invest in industrials because these customers do know what they want. And they are incredibly technically skilled. They have incredible understanding of all the complexities. And I, I felt it was an incredible advantage to have what I believe is you know, most of that, that GDP of that segment is, is somewhere in that, in the middle as you describe it. And having access to them, having that Midwest fabric uh, center of the country fabric um, to develop access and then information asymmetry, which ultimately will drive better investments, was a goal that I wanted. And, and we found that at Energize. You know, we've we've specifically constructed our fund with LPs like Caterpillar, who's based, you know, in Midwest, um, Invenergy, large developer, GE has big offices here, Schneider Electric, big offices. And then beyond that, just literally all the logistics companies um, who most people don't know their names of. Um, or agriculture firms, they're, they're all within reach here. And it's, a, it's frankly a heck of a lot easier getting to know them from Chicago than it is from San Francisco. I couldn't agree more. I think you're completely right. Now, let's talk about, we were talking about, we talked about the investment side. Let's talk about the, the, the company building, the founder's side. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in terms of, you know, I've, and I'm sure you're seeing a lot of these too. There are, there are just some fantastic opportunities coming out of places like Milwaukee, Indianapolis, yep. Tennessee, Nashville, you know, Texas, I mean, you name it, right down the middle. Talk to me about what you see as some of the unique opportunities for founders building here. Yeah, we have a couple investments in Chicago. Um, we've looked at a number in Minneapolis. We have one in Texas. Let's do one together in, in your neck of the woods too. That'd be great. I'd say the, um, using Fast Radius, who's one of our investments here locally in Chicago, they, and they do additive printing, design, and logistics. They were able to access, because of the you know, Chicago network, uh, an incredible number of companies, many of which are Fortune 500, because of that connectivity, because of that local fabric and the ability to, to bring those executives on site for quick feedback and to show the product in real time. And, and that proximity, again, that like just you can't fake it that, that somewhere in the middle of America fabric closes deals and, and brings trust that maybe um, the coasts have lost um, with a lot of the fake it until you make it 
ideals that have that have kind of crept into other areas. Again, I see a lot of the same thing. And I, I think too, I think now, you know, one of, there were a lot of really horrendous things that happened as a result of the pandemic. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I think will be exciting to watch, especially in the middle of the country, is we've had this great dispersion of yes. startup yes. talent across across the country and kind of how that unfolds and creates new stories uh, in, the heart, in the heartland, I think will be interesting. So yeah, yeah, there's a Chicago campaign I think they're actually putting billboards in like San Francisco and Boston, like come back home, raise, you know, raise your family here. And I think it's going to be successful. If, you know, people are already coming back. Texas is obviously going to be a big winner. There's tax reasons. There's weather reasons. Um, right. But I think we've now all realized that we can do a lot of our job, unfortunately or fortunately, through a computer screen. You know, why not live where you want to live? Well said. So, okay, I'm going to shift our conversation and just talk for a minute about Energize. You guys have made and my numbers are probably off a bit, but 25 plus investments across four plus fund, four funds, I think. Can you first correct me if I'm wrong? Um, we've, we've announced under 20, but you know, okay. we're, you're not, you're not, you're in the range, in the range. Can you talk to me about your thoughts, Energize's thoughts on portfolio construction and investment strategy? Yeah. In terms of investment strategy, I'll start there, which is the average revenue of a company in our portfolio when we invest is $4 million. Um, and the reason that's important is um, you just can't like, even if you have a big lumpy customer, which industrials may have, if you have $4 million of revenue serving this space, your product works. You have proven the value to people who know the value of products. There's no, oh, this might have a good payback schedule. And so we focus post-technical risk, but really early on in commercial adoption. Um, and then we leverage a lot of our LP network and our industrial network here in the Midwest to help scale those companies. The second main criterion for us is, again, capital light businesses, more digital. There are better business funding mechanisms to fund a big hardware plant or a big, a big hardware technical innovation. For us, we want to focus on that software layer, which Venture has proven well. And then finally, um, you know, we're Energize, which is energy um, within the name, but only about 20% of the revenue in our portfolio comes from the energy space. It turns out that construction, agriculture, industrials, you know, automotive, all of these industries, these more analog industries, these more Midwestern industries, frankly, tend to buy the software the same way, which is you got to show me the value. You know, it's got to work. There's going to be a POC and I'm going to buy when it's, I'm darn certain it's working. And, and so we've really aligned to businesses who have those characteristics. And, and so when you move it on to portfolio construction, there's a few that are a little earlier in the commercial adoption and a few that are a little later, but we're generally just looking for founding teams or entrepreneurs who respect the customer. It's like, I, I can't describe it more than that. It's like when you introduce them to a, a logistics provider in the Midwest, do they want to get to know what that business is really about or do they want to sell their technology? And for us, like uh, we can tell within a meeting or two, if we call them, if they're, if they're energized entrepreneurs, if they have that, ability to connect. So like that, that is how we look at de-risking across the, the portfolio. You know, I think a lot of people in this space talk often about you really can't win as a founder if you're an industry outsider. It's really important that you can understand the customer and yep. that you can speak their language and understand the problem you're solving for them. I also have watched this sort of shift where now you're starting to see these founding teams where you might have an industry insider paired with a technology expert come together. 
what are you seeing that works in those spaces? I mean, are you seeing founders from out? I mean, I think what you're talking about is founders from outside the space kind of flying in and talk, and trying to sell the greatest, you know, the greatest solution to X, Y, or Z, and that's not well received. Where does it work? Does does it have to be an industry insider, or can it? So it's funny, you know, half of our portfolio companies are actually based, or they were before the pandemic, based in the pandemic, or based in the Bay Area. Um, mm -hmm. You can have that 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 customer know how and be in the Bay Area. It's just, you know, it's a needle in a haystack, and that takes, you know, making sure. So in our process, to give you an example, you know, we get to know a company usually for about nine months before you invest, which is longer than the current very, uh, <laughs> very hypey cycle these days, because we want to see, we really follow, we'll make, we'll make sales introductions and energized members will actually sit in on the sales calls. We want to see how you react. How did you respond? Did you take feedback from the call and change your marketing materials to, to connect on the level? Because that's what it takes to succeed. And like, if you don't want to commit the resources to this space, like we want to know, um, so our time, we also think is valuable. And there's been a number of companies who we've invested in who, they had no revenue in what you and I would call these industrial verticals. We now have the biggest, all the revenue coming from these spaces. And, and that's just like, that commitment is, it's, um, it's rare, but when you find it, you just got to like load up. Right. No, I think that I, well put. So, you know, our focus on this podcast is what makes a great VC. And uh, we like to look at some of the harder parts of that journey and you as an investor. My path was very non-traditional. And I'm always curious about other people's journeys here. So, you know, you talked about uh, joining a, a startup that you worked through its acquisition, I think. And mm -hmm. I know those can be exhilarating rides. Why did you switch to venture versus going after and going after and being playing a key role in another startup? I know you you went back and forth in a few roles too. So it, there's never an easy answer. I, I was really close to coming back into an operating role here in Chicago. There, I felt like there were a few opportunities where my growth experience could have been helpful. But I, like, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I really wanted to make an impact in this sustainable revolution, this digitization of the traditionally analog industries. I felt like I had learned the pros of the technology industry from the West Coast and embedded it within my personality was the, the pros of connecting with these, you know, middle of America. And, mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to find a high leverage role high fulcrum role to, to put those together. And that was, that was energized. It's worked out well. I will say, I, I definitely miss, I miss the operating side. I miss the, you know, owning a PL at a, at a, at a startup and then, you know, living with the consequences of missing or hitting that number is frightening, but exhilarating. And, you know, you don't get that in venture. You know, this takes eight years to figure out if you're, you're decent. It takes a different patient's profile, but I now have far greater respect and patience with entrepreneurs when the pros and the cons do happen. Uh, I think that was an important lesson for me in the operating side. That would that makes a ton of sense. And um, you know, I think being in venture, one of the things that's so interesting about it is we get to see so many founders and so many companies, uh, yeah. and and so many different dynamics that that kind of exhilaration still holds. It's just in a different in a different, different way. way. Yeah. Um, yep. Right. We don't get to go as deep, but we we go we go more broad, which can, it can be exhilarating in its own way. Were there experiences early on in your life that you can point to that translated to kind of the grit and resilience that it's taken you to kind of be successful on the path you've chosen? So I, I moved a lot growing up, um, Canadian by birth, uh, lived in Canada, Connecticut, London, England, 
I moved from London to Dallas, which if you want to talk about a move of culture, that's quite one. <laughs> um, I think North Carolina and then um, Illinois, California. And I guess just like, if anything, it was less a single event and more living in different cultures and finding a way to find similarities and aligned interests and just respect. And I think that um, you, we meet a lot of people in the finance world who clearly are a little too proud of themselves and, and just always like defaulting to respecting what's going on, respecting the entrepreneur. And then for us, just like these should be five to 10 year relationships uh, if everything goes well with the company and always acting you know, for the long-term relationship. There's no short-term wins here. If you, if you start optimizing for the short-term, either in venture or in a startup, you're toast. Um, so to me, it's just, yeah, it was generally learning about finding common ground. It was a common trait of me moving around growing up. Yeah. And being interested in kind of what drives other people and how, and what makes them tick and what their interests yeah. are and what they care about. Right. Yeah. Um, no, thanks for sharing that. I think that's, that's, that's interesting. Okay. So we're kind of at the, coming to the end of our time. There are three questions that we ask all of our guests. We kind of hit these in rapid fire. In your opinion, what makes mm -hmm. a great VC investor? Uh, curiosity. There's secrets hiding in plain sight. And if you can ask the right questions and really engage with somebody to learn what drives them through question, you can, you can find out a lot of great answers. Great. Now you, you don't really actually give out much advice on your, on your blog. I love tough venturing is such a fun read. I've enjoyed it. And, uh, and if, and for those of you listening who haven't checked it out, if you're interested in the industrial space, uh, and some of the different macroeconomic issues in play, I suggest you follow it. Uh, but what advice do Thank you, you. <laughs> have for, you're welcome. What advice do you have for our, for our audience of investors and innovators? Yeah. Um, so for, for the innovators, my number one advice would just be, you know, stay, stay capital efficient for as long as you can. It's really easy to read blogs or read a, something about a very successful company and think that it all was rosy from the start to the end. If you stay capital efficient, you can control your destiny and ultimately the customers pull you at the right time. Um, I've seen so many companies who want something so bad that they spend only for the opportunity not to be there, especially in the industrial space. The sales cycles are long for nine months to 12 months. You buckle up and, and just be capital efficient. And then for the for co-investors, investors, um, and, and budding venture firms, I, I would say that the biggest lesson for me coming back into the space is um, find out what your competitive advantage is and then just keep investing in that. Um, again, you'll read about 50 other successful venture, you know, men and women, and you'll want to emulate them, but then you're not going to, you're not going to, you're going to be the same and, and they're doing their own strengths. So find your strengths and just like be proud of them and invest in it. Great advice. Great advice. And that focus on capital efficiency, I think is so important, yeah. especially right now, just given there's so much capital in play. Um, so it's money. easy to think yep. you need to raise or should raise so much more than you might actually be able to put to work in a smart way. Okay. So let's, this is kind of our final question. How do you stay sharp? And then what books, podcasts, blogs do you pay attention to? Sure. Um, so just generally staying sharp. I, I will go for a run most mornings with a podcast and that can vary. And then at the end of the day, I'll put my computer away for at least three hours with my kids um, just to get some change of scenery. I think people who spend too much time can get obsessed with the competitive nature of this business and that's dangerous. In terms of a uh, book, I would recommend, um, I don't know if you've heard this one on your podcast before, Lessons from Titans. 
you know, so much is written these days on Google and Microsoft, et cetera, but this is about all the industrial technology giants, Honeywell's of the world, and just hearing how they were built, I think it will give you great respect for the industrial environment. So I recommend that. Great. I love it. Well, John, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Thanks for the great conversation. I look forward to watching what Energize does next. And uh, it's been great getting to chat with you. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Maggie. You too. This was great. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. <laughs>